This is Fostering Conversations with Utah Foster Care, where we have insightful conversations about parenting for bio, foster, adoptive, or blended families to better understand the experiences we all face as families. Hello, Utah families. I'm Deborah Lindner, and we want to welcome you to this episode of Fostering Conversations. And today we're bringing you a conversation on a crucial subject for foster parents to understand. Liz Rivera, my co-host, and I know that one of the big hurdles at times for foster parents to understand is substance abuse disorder as it pertains to the moms and dads of kids in their care. We want to also acknowledge today our producer, Marshall Shearer Davis. He is a foster parent himself and often gives us a lot of really good feedback on our conversations. And speaking of feedback, we want to invite you to give us your feedback at the end of this podcast. Let us know what other questions you have. We will have resources online to help you further on this conversation. And so it's time to welcome Liz. Thanks, Deborah. It's always wonderful to be here with you. As we know, in two out of three foster care cases, substance abuse is a contributing factor in why a child is removed from their biological homes. Two out of three cases. And that means most foster parents listening to this conversation have kids in their homes who have seen the impact of substance abuse in their homes. Absolutely. And it just, it kills me really that to think if we could better address what leads to folks misusing substances and certainly addiction to substances, we could almost, almost eliminate, not quite the foster care program. And when I think about y'all our conversations lately about epidemics and pandemics, I just think for decades, it's, it's been drugs and it's, it's one of the issues that we still haven't fully grasped as a community. So why don't you introduce us to our guest and we'll start the conversation. Great. So we are really happy today to have Dr. Marin Wright-Voss and she is from the Utah State University, the health extension. So she and I were talking before the podcast started and a lot of us may follow uh, USU's extension for you know gardening and canning and nutrition and all that wonderful stuff they do, but they're also doing work in, in the field of health. Dr. Voss is an assistant professor of health and wellness. The program she's working with with the extension is looking at the impact of opiates on, on families. So first we just like Dr. Voss to hear a little bit more about that program and, and what your goals are, what your work is, and how it's affecting the community. Yeah, you bet. So Health Extension is this sort of new space for extension, which has been a program that's been out in all of our communities and has community partners and coalitions and connections. And as the state started to experience this opioid crisis, Extension thought we can do a little bit more with these community connections we have if we have some health-focused faculty out in our extension offices. And so I was one of those faculty that was hired to address the opioid crisis in Utah. And we've just been having a lot of success writing for some grant funding, publishing like, you know, fact sheets and information for community members, just so people understand the problems with opioids and how easy it is to become addicted and have some solutions on how to um, sort of sidestep some of those pitfalls with opioids. So it's been great to work in this space. That's wonderful. And I was thinking too, as you were talking that opiates are a little bit different than some other drug classes because folks can be introduced to the prescriptions from doctors. 
which is a little bit different than you never prescribed meth or cocaine, but you might be prescribed opiates. Yeah, absolutely. You know, this actually isn't America's first opiate crisis because back in the early 20th century, opium was smoked in dens. It was used in hospitals and sort of like a miracle drug, even in people's homes. And back then, as people started to get addicted to opioids, the policymakers started to recognize a problem. And that's the first time that opiates became a classified drug that you could only get by prescription. And that kept the addiction rates low. So it wasn't really a problem. And then until more recently, starting in the 1980s, as people started to recognize that pain is a real problem for patients and really started to advocate for better pain management. And in that whole period of time, they started to sort of push doctors to prescribe more pain management options. And opiates obviously are great at managing pain. At that same time, pharmaceutical companies started to also market the medications as safe and non-addictive, which is where part of the problem was. We didn't, even though we'd had this past opiate crisis, people weren't realizing that that addiction potential was there. And so with these prescription pain medications being more and more available, people started to have those addiction problems. And we started to see overdose deaths rise. And a lot of problems start to happen again through a doctor's prescription. Like you say, people thought it was safe. It comes from a doctor, from a pill bottle. In fact, if you don't mind, I'll even read you a quote from one of our people who was in recovery. Um, They were willing to share their story with us. And they talked about this. They said, at first I took them for pain. And then I realized they gave me this energy and maybe not care about what was going on in my marriage at the time. And I just started to use them as my go-to for my emotional problems as well as my physical pain. And so having it there readily available in this prescription bottle, it makes it sometimes just a little too easy to start to use it for other purposes. And people get started on that pathway to addiction that they may have never found if it wasn't there in a prescription bottle. So the drugs, the drugs change, you know, every few years, we're talking about one epidemic or another, it was cocaine at one point, it was meth. Now it's opioids, or maybe even a combination. And you use the term addiction. Addiction is something that I know in the child welfare community, we're starting to use substance abuse disorder. Can you help us understand the difference? Well, I don't know if you can really say there's a difference. So one of the things that you understand when you're diagnosing a substance use disorder is that there's a couple of facets of a person building up tolerance to a medication that is normal and to be start to become dependent on a medication, which is another one of the clinical terms that can be very normal because the chemicals do change the way the body functions. So, so those things aren't a problem unless a person starts to experience problems with their use. It starts to interfere with their job. It starts to interfere with their relationships. They maybe start to commit crimes or engage in risky behaviors. Then those normal biological processes have crossed a line into what you could call addiction, but you can also label from a medical perspective as a substance use disorder. So people are becoming addicted at that point, but the substance use disorder is the more, you know, medically sanctioned term for that. I think probably the reason people don't like the word addiction as much is because we, for a while we were calling people addicts and that was a stigmatizing term. And so they've just wanted to get away from any of that language. And so they've stepped away from the word addiction, which describes the situation, but we can also call it substance use disorder. I think that's true. You think of an addict as someone on the street with a needle up their arm. And so I think from our standpoint, we want foster parents to have compassion 
for people that have some sort of a, I guess, a disorder could be described as an illness and understood more as an illness. Yeah, absolutely. Totally agree. One thing too, that you said that I thought was really interesting is so in thinking about maybe the difference between opioids being prescribed and then other substances like alcohol or meth or other, you know, kind of what we call recreational drugs. Is the process kind of similar for those other substances too, that maybe people start using them maybe recreationally, alcohol, obviously like in social settings, and then it goes from a kind of normal, maybe dependency to when we fall into the realm of disorder. Well, one of the things you'll definitely see is that people who have substance use disorders also tend to have much higher rates of mental health disorders at the same time. They call that comorbidity. And so certainly there is this um, belief among clinicians that some people might turn to substances in order to manage the mental crisis and distress that they're experiencing. And so it's they call it sometimes self-medicating. So there's certainly a link there that perhaps people are using these medications or these drugs of abuse to manage their mental health symptoms. And if they were to just get into mental health treatment, they maybe wouldn't move down this path toward addiction if they had other resources and other options for managing mental health problems. So we definitely see that overlap and that that could explain some of what's going on as people move toward addiction. What have you been able to find out or are you hoping to find out about how having a substance abuse disorder affects your ability to parent your child? Oh my goodness. We have uh, the, the research on this is fairly new. We've typically looked just at the person experiencing the substance use disorder and to understand them and their condition. So understanding how they operate as a parent or how they operate in families, there isn't a lot of good evidence about it, but we have gathered some evidence and we absolutely understand that there's some patterns that suggests that parents who struggle with addiction struggle in a lot of other parenting areas as well. Let me just go through a few of the things we found. They tend to have problematic parenting beliefs. So some of this is they have inappropriate expectations of their children. They might expect them to have more self-control. They don't understand the developmental process of the child and don't understand how to, um, what to expect from the child. They sometimes show reverse parenting roles where they expect their children to act like the grown up in the situation and to be the one taking responsibility. They also sometimes disempower children. And so that can reduce the child's feeling of independence and their autonomy by taking the power away from the child. They use more corporal punishment, which um, can be damaging to the relationship. They tend to have lower levels of empathy. So they're just not quite as compassionate and caring. And that's probably something about the way the substances are impacting their brain and their relationships that they just don't have that level of caring and compassion for their children that you would see with other parents. And then they also just in terms of general parenting, don't seem to know like how to recognize when their kid is sick, what their nutritional needs are. I mentioned the normal path of infant development um, and, and they don't um, have as good of idea of what kind of discipline will work best with their children. So there's just a lot of ways in which a parent who's using substances can struggle with parenting. And it sounds like a lot of those could lead to the family then interacting with the child welfare system and potentially the children coming into foster care. Absolutely. You can get some neglect and some abuse from some of those factors I just mentioned that would cause that crossover into needing some support from the state system to protect the child. So I want to maybe move a little bit then into the idea of treatment and maybe recovery. 
because the goal of foster care is reunification. So the goal is to put families back together and not let them, you know, fall apart forever. So a couple of things occur to me. One is that there's a lot of things probably that have to be addressed, obviously the substance use issues, but, but I'm thinking that even like if a parent were to, you know, get, get into recovery, some of those, those, the list of things you talked about parents struggle with, those aren't necessarily going to just go away. Those struggles may continue. Um, so I'm just interested in knowing like paths of treatment, availability of treatment, and then kind of ongoing support that these parents may need even once they find uh, recovery. Because I work in community programs, I'm not really on the treatment side of the spectrum in terms of knowing how parents can get access to those resources. But there are so many community partners who are trying to address and fill that need. One that we work with regularly is the Family Support Center, and they offer a crisis nursery. Parents who are struggling with their own emotional regulation, which we definitely see in substance using parents, one way that they can get control of themselves and um, to sort of step out of that cycle of abuse is to take their child to a safe place. And a crisis nursery would be one of those resources that would support parents. And when parents start to engage in those kinds of program and um, support resources, that can start to connect them to the broader world um, of support as well. The Family Support Center offers parent parental counseling. They offer parenting education classes. So I know that there's a lot of community agencies trying to fill that gap and that need. And when a parent can engage with that system, then they start to get access to those supports. And what we tell our foster parents is the more you understand and have compassion for these parents that are going through this, uh, the more they're going to recognize that they have a support system in you. And so support systems, I would think, are very, very important, which means foster parents have to sometimes say to the biological parents, hey, we're here to support you. We're not here to take your child away. And biological parents tell us that makes a huge difference. Oh, that's a great idea. And I was just thinking how much the biological parent can learn from the foster parent. You know, kids living with a parent with a substance use disorder are more likely to lack supervision. Um, they might be exposed to more illegal activity. And so just being able to learn from the foster parent about what appropriate supervision looks like, you know, what kind of structures are being put in place and how to keep the child safe and to protect them from some of those unsafe people that might be around a person with substance use disorder, I think is a great sort of a collaboration to get that child back with their biological parent. So along those lines, you know, Deborah's talking about you know, the importance of the foster parent having understanding and compassion. How can we frame substance use disorder in a way that is compassionate? I mean, without, without excusing, you know, the, the consequences of that, holding people accountable, but how do we frame that so that foster parents can look at this person who's maybe struggling and see them as someone who's struggling and not just like, as we talked about before, an addict? Oh yeah. So I actually think that's one of the blessings of the recent opioid epidemic is because you started to see that the, the typical stereotypes we had about a substance using person really didn't hold true because it was, you know, your neighbor's daughter and it was someone's uncle who ended up falling into these addiction patterns with opioids because they came for a prescription bottle. And so you really started to see how once the addiction takes hold, it's not a character flaw that the person has fallen into this terrible situation. Some of the stories we heard, you know, like a, a woman who'd been married with two children to a nice guy 
And before she knows it, she's divorced and she's talked to some friend who says, I can get you some of the meds that her doctor won't give her anymore. And she ends up in a back alley somewhere and just like totally not where she expected to be. Um, and she ends up, you know, distanced from her children, but she came from this place that sort of everyone can understand and relate to, and yet ended up in this whole other world. And so seeing that this can happen to the neighbor next door, I think helps people to understand that these people aren't really different from us. They've just had a big struggle. And I think that puts us in a place where we can have a little bit more compassion for, for the struggle that they're going through. And maybe even a little more patience then as we try to help them get back from that difficult world they've been in and get back reunited with their children. It also helped foster parents, I would think, understand some of the children's behaviors. As you mentioned, if there's reverse parenting roles, you know, you may think of that child as, oh, he or she is very mature and isn't this great? They're independent. But part of that is that you really need to let kids be kids. Oh, such a good point. A lot of kids growing up with substance using parents, they're much more estranged from their fathers. Like the fathers end up being much less involved in their children's lives when um, this has been their background. And so they haven't had a positive male role model in their lives. That also can help explain some of the different behaviors we might see. They tend to have economic deprivation. And so you're going to see all of that struggle in the child's life, as well as that, you know, the parents having had a difficult time modeling appropriate behavior for them. So we're talking about, you know, helping foster parents view the parents of the children with compassion and understanding. The reality is though, that there still can be difficulties. And so our foster families often interact with the family of the children through taking them to visit, sometimes telephone calls, you know, between the child and the parent. And then sometimes after, even after reunification, the foster family will stay involved kind of as a mentor support for that family, which is ideal. But what are some red flags that foster parents need to be aware of? Because our first goal, of course, is to protect the kids, even while, you know, viewing their parents with compassion, we still have to protect the kids and anything that the foster parents should be aware of as they're interacting with the parents that if they see, start to see certain things, they might need to be concerned. Yeah, Liz, that isn't really something I can speak to. I haven't had to work in the DCFS system. Um, one of the things I have is I've been interacting with some of those agency professionals. One of the things that I've really appreciated is their ability to do risk assessment and to recognize when, and it's, they seem to be shifting more toward risk assessment for, than just whether or not the parent has been using substances and really sort of examining when the child's at risk. So I would just have to rely on their guidance in knowing what those red flags are. But a parent using substances isn't always, isn't, doesn't have to be a red flag if they're being able to act in a compassionate way with appropriate boundaries and all of those other factors, right? So it's nice that they've moved in this direction of risk assessment and, and keeping the focus on keeping the child safe while still trying to reunite them with their parents. And I think that's a shift too that I know that we, we've talked to our families about before. Is, and I think some of them have a little bit of a struggle with this is that, I mean, I think that's why a substance use disorder is actually a really good term because you can have substance use without it being a disorder. Yeah. yeah. And so, and, and I, I never ask people to raise their hand, but I ask, I always tell people in this room, I have a room of 40 foster families I'm training. And I say, in this room, I bet you, you know, 10% at least were raised by a parent who had maybe a problem with alcohol, but they were still able to function day to day it may not have been ideal, but it wasn't, it wasn't ever going to reach the point of foster care. And so I think that sometimes people need to understand that it's not ideal, but it, it can happen that a parent can be using and still be okay. 
Yeah. And, you know, that's actually one of the things we're moving toward in our stigma reduction efforts is to realize that a lot of times medications have to be part of a parent's recovery. There's been this sort of societal emphasis on abstinence. And particularly when a person has gotten to the point where they have a substance use disorder and they've created all this harm in people's lives, you know, you have a problem with a substance. And so people think, well, you just have to stop using it completely in order to get out of that pattern. And what you end up sometimes setting people up for is relapse when they try to just totally cut things off and and they can't rely on some of their prior coping mechanisms um, in using substances. And you make a good point that a lot of people in our society rely on substances to cope with their daily stressors. We certainly have a lot of traditions around that uh, happy hour and whatnot. So we are finding that um, supporting people with substance use disorder, sometimes with medications, is a better approach to keep them on a stable path of recovery. Luckily, with opioid use disorder, we have some really safe medications that we can provide that still respond to the opioid receptors. A person will still test positive for opioid use, but they have a shorter half-life, so they're not as addictive, that people don't experience the same sort of you know, relief and and it's not really a high with opioid use disorder in the same way that it is with some other um, like meth kind of drugs that people might use, but they don't experience that sense of pleasure with these medicated options, but they're still taking opioids and it's part of their recovery. And that's an okay part of the recovery. And so a person doesn't have to be abstinent to be on a path toward um, recovery. And I think you're right, sort of shifting the way we think about what it means to be in recovery and to be a person who's parenting, engaging in relationships, going back to work, you know, all of those healthy behaviors. If, if those things are happening, then it no longer qualifies as substance use disorder, even if they're still using substances. And we need to have a little more tolerance for that. That's a very good point. I know I was listening on public radio recently and that, that conversation was happening for too long. We've, um, like you said, that abstinence, and then we're setting people up for failure without giving them a, a, a bridge to support them from from struggle to recovery. Yeah. And in the harm reduction world, they like to talk about it as if like you wouldn't take a diabetic and withhold insulin. I mean, the insulin is something that is going to um, support them and get them to a healthier place. And it's the same with some of our substance use disorders. Sometimes medication is a part of that ongoing treatment process. And sometimes it has to be really long-term. We know that the changes that happen in the brain, the brain doesn't really get back to normal functioning for um, as long as two years, even when the person's been safely in recovery that whole time, there's still some healing that has to happen to think that a person can do a 30 day treatment program and then be hundred percent healed at the end of that isn't quite realistic. And so it's a long-term process. And the more the foster parents are willing to offer that compassion and engage as that healing's happening, I think the better place we'll be at. That's fascinating. If, if I'm a foster parent listening to this, what I'm hearing is that I need to be constantly like educating myself about substance use disorder and keep learning. You don't get all of this in training, right, Liz? No, we do. We do address it briefly, but it certainly isn't nearly as extensive as, as we need, we need to do. And then on an ongoing basis, I think one, one thing we know about training is you're sitting in a room and you hear this stuff, you're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But when it's, you're really confronted with an issue, a situation, it gets harder sometimes to translate that information to actual practice. 
That makes me think about how, like, there's so many things you can't really learn until you do it, like you say, in actual practice um, in the real situations. And that means that some of these skills we're trying to practice and people we're trying to support, we're going to make mistakes. And I just think that, you know, sometimes it's okay to acknowledge those mistakes and to come back and say, um, you know, I could have done this better. Um, let's try this over again, um, especially when we're working with these kids that have had these really hard life experiences, when we're working with parents who've had these hard life experiences. And I think those do-overs um, work for the person in recovery, as well as for those of us who are trying to help them. So Dr. Voss, unfortunately, we are at the end of our time here, but if foster parents want to know more about what the what USU Extension has to offer Will you give us some resources we can put on our page of this podcast and have for the parents? Yeah, you bet. There's tons of federal sources, state and local resources, um, and we're always willing to answer questions. We'll send that all over to you so you have it at the ready. Well, thank you so much for being with us. I want to also thank Liz, as always. This is a huge issue for foster parents in Utah and across the country, of course. We will have a list of those resources from USU Extension and on our podcast webpage. And once again, send us your comments and thoughts on this podcast and any future podcasts you'd like to hear from us. Once again, this is Deborah Lindner. I'm saying thanks for joining us, along with our producer, Marshall Shear Davis and my co-host, Liz Rivera. We'll see you all next month for another edition of Fostering Conversations. So long, everybody. This has been Fostering Conversations with Utah Foster Care. Thank you for joining us. For more information, go to utahfostercare.org. We'll see you next time.